Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. This episode is sponsored by Port Fiber, a wonderful shop in Portland, Maine, specializing in one-of-a-kind hand-dyed fiber and yarn. Casey has curated an incredible collection of spinning fibers, including yak, cherry, alpaca, polworth, and a variety of hand-dyed blends. You can visit Port Fiber in person when in Portland, Maine, or shop online at portfiber.com. Today we get to meet two fiber folks, both women with a special love for Gotland sheep and both with unique fiber journeys that have taken them to interesting and inspiring places. Sue Blacker of Blacker Yarns and the Natural Fiber Company and Kim Goodling of Vermont Grandview Farm. Kim is a passionate ambassador and breeder of Gotland sheep, dyer, entrepreneur, and hardworking mom. She runs a beautiful farm in Vermont where she hosts farm stays and a great selection of fiber-related classes. She recently launched her online shop of Gotland Yarns and Fibers at gotlandwoolcompany.com. You can find her at grandviewfarmvt.net and on Instagram at vtgrandviewfarm. And with that, here's Kim. I've been really excited to hear about your fiber journey, and I'd, I'd love it if you would just maybe start from the beginning. Well, my journey began about 10 years ago, and... Um, we were living in Vermont. We had a small homestead and we had some acreage that was always, um, it was always a challenge to keep that pasture maintained. And so we were kind of thinking about what we could add that would help maintain the fields. And so that was one motivating factor. And then another was um, I had been talking with a friend who was in her 70s and she was talking about how many regrets that she had in life and things that she wished she had done but now she was too old or she didn't have enough money or you know timing wasn't good and um when she left i said to my husband that i didn't want to be like her and so my husband looked at me and said well what do you want to do and i said well i want to get sheep so um he said okay let's do it um so sheep kind of solve two problems. One, it solved the problem of how to maintain our pasture. And two, it sort of got me through that midlife crisis. Um, and so that's where the the whole fiber thing began. I had never knit before. I knew nothing about wool or spinning yarn or any of that. I thought all sheep were created equal. (laughs) (laughs) And I knew I really knew absolutely nothing. So once we began to look at purchasing sheep, and we started visiting farms, and I started going to a lot of the different fiber festivals and I would sit in on all their animal husbandry classes and consulted with the UVM extension service person who is like the sheep expert and 
finally, he's actually said to me, he said, Kim, I think it's time to stop asking questions and just go get some sheep. So, <laughs> so that's what we did. Um, and we brought home our first small flock of sheep. Uh, we, we purchased three or no, it was, yeah, we purchased three Romneys and one Cormo and then a, a cross Cormo Romney ewe. So that was our first flock. And, um, you know, that was early fall. So we had them through that winter. And when they needed to be sheared, we got them sheared. And then I'm like, what, you know, what do we do with this? What do we do with this wool? And there was a spinning guild that met about an hour away from us and I homeschooled. So I had three young children and we showed up at the spinning guild and we were by far the youngest people there. Everyone else was probably between 65 and 75. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they thought that we would come once or twice and then that would be the end of it. But we didn't. We kept coming back. And it was the most wonderful group of women. You know, they loved sharing what they knew and they loved having someone that was excited about what they were doing and interested in what they were doing. I think they were really excited to have the children there and to see that they were involved and excited. So that group really taught me almost everything I know. Um, most of those women also owned their own sheep. So they were not just a good resource in terms of the knitting and spinning, but also in terms of keeping sheep. Um, they were well-versed in that. So then I also found a woman who is an amazing fiber artist. Her name is Robin Russo. And she only lives 30 minutes from me, but she is an amazing person. She writes articles for Spinoff Magazine. She teaches at conferences all over the United States. She's just an amazing fiber artist and fiber resource. And the kids and I started taking almost every class that she offered. You know, between her and that spinning guild, they really taught me everything I needed to know. But I, I do think it, it sort of makes sense for me to end up here because when I was a little girl, my family always had cats and dogs. And um, I remember as a little girl being very tactile and I just loved my cats because of the way they felt in, in my hands. <laughs> and I was that, that little toddler that would rub the edge of her her little blanket you know <laughs> because I love the way that silk binding felt so I was I've always been very tactile so it kind of makes sense that I ended up where I where I am today I guess but I feel like our whole family really became immersed in this um, and in a very short period of time we went from really knowing nothing to having quite a nice skill set, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. And then it was neat, too, to see how the kids um, got involved in the farm and the whole process as well. Tell me a little bit about your farm. 
Well, when we brought our first flock of sheep home, we were living on a different property and we had been looking for another house to buy um, because we had really outgrown the house that we were in. It was a very small 200-year-old cape and I homeschooled. So I just, we just outgrew it. I needed not just a home, but a school space as well. So I had been looking for other property and we found this farm. It's got, it only has like 15 acres. It was a, a farm that had not been used as a farm for, I think, 75 years. Um, it definitely has agriculture in its history but the previous two owners had used it as a summer home. So we were the first people to kind of come back and bring a family here and bring animals here. And we raise our own food. We have a greenhouse and raise lots of vegetables. My son in the summer raises pigs and sells some of the meat to friends and neighbors. And then we keep some. We have chickens and um, we have sheep and a guard llama. So we're really a self-sustaining farm. And our farm has sort of taken on the role of being like an educational center, so to speak. The house that we live in is, uh, it's two houses that were built side by side. One was built in the 1700s and the other one was built in the mid-1800s right next to it. And the side that we that was built in the 1700s, we rent out to people that want to do farm stays. And we also offer um, custom fiber art classes. So if people want to come and take a class in felting or spinning or dyeing yarn, um, then they can come stay with us and take a class as well. And years ago, when we first moved here, we would also run summer camps for kids and we would host farm camps. And that was always a lot of fun. And we would run a mom's camp alongside of the kids camp. So I worked with the moms while my children worked with the kids that came to camp. So it's sort of been this place that people can come to experience farm life, but also learn about it and to learn about fiber arts, whether they already have some interest in it or it's something new to them. I think the, the most interesting people that have come to request classes here and want to stay here are people who um, they're involved in the design industry. I've had I've had two knitwear designers from New York City who work for different design companies contact me and request to come and stay and take classes. And both of them have told me that they feel it's important and their work as a designer to get a sense of the big picture. Mm-hmm. You know, that they, they, they work with yarn every day of their life and they have no idea where it comes from. You know, mm-hmm. what what are the animals like? How how are the animals cared for? How is the wool even 
gotten off the animal. What do you do with it? You know, mm -hmm. so that's been really fun for me to work with people like that. Um, it just sort of expands their knowledge base so they can better appreciate the products that they work with every day. So tell me about your sheep. We started out with Romney sheep and we decided on that breed because when we were visiting different sheep farms trying to decide who to buy from and what kind of sheep to get, um, we went to a Romney sheep farm and when we walked out to the field with the man that owned the, the farm, all the sheep came running down to the fence line towards us. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and said, I want these sheep. <laughs> because every other place we went, the sheep did the opposite. They would see people coming and they'd run away from you. Um, and the Romneys had just gorgeous fleece, um, very long, very lustrous, just amazing fiber to work with. So for years, we had Romney sheep. And then this past spring, I sort of went through a, a difficult time, which I'll spare the details. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I began to uh, want to find a different breed of sheep that we could bring onto the farm. And it was Jennifer from the Sachem Farm who told me about a book written by Sue Blacker called Pure Wool, and mm -hmm. Sue lives in England, and she has a flock of her own sheep, and she also runs a mill where they specialize in pure breed wools. And in this book, she talks about the different breeds of sheep and talks about their fiber and what the best uses for the fiber are and describes the animal. And I came to the section on Gotland sheep, and that is the breed of sheep that she herself raises. And when I got finished reading the section on Gotland sheep, I looked at my husband and I said, I have found the breed of sheep I want to buy. And I had him read the chapter. And so then I started on this quest. I'd never heard of Gotland sheep, didn't know anything about them, started Googling. And I realized that they were actually quite new to the United States um, and that the sheep were not, you could not import the animal into the United States. So during the past seven years, there had been an upbreeding program in the United States where they had imported semen and through artificial insemination with similar breeds, they were building the breed in the United States. And at this point, there are several farms that have sheep that are in the uh, 80s and 90s, you know, percent ranges of Gotland, which is amazing um, to me. But um, so last summer, I began selling some of my Romney sheep so that I could bring some Gotland sheep onto the farm. So currently, we have both breeds on the property. Uh, but I'm just really excited about these Gotland sheep. So when did you get these sheep? Well, <laughs> We, we purchased a couple of them in late summer and early fall, and then I purchased another five from a breeder in Oregon. And so on November 22nd, those sheep loaded onto a livestock trailer 
and it took them three weeks to get to our farm. So they didn't get here till like the second week of December. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very long journey, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they did. A, they did great. They walked off that trailer like there was nothing wrong with them. You know, they they didn't show any signs of stress other than they were extremely skittish um, and untrusting. But they, they've really calmed down a lot since they've been here. Um, so that that was a lot of fun to watch them. Uh, the man that drove them across the United States has a Yahoo group. And he would post every day where he was, and you could track him across the United States. So on my farm blog, I had a map, a Google map, you know, and you could mm-hmm. follow where they were. And that, that was a lot of fun. That's but, awesome. Yeah, but I'm just glad that they're here now. <laughs> yeah. You just sent off the first batch of wool to be processed. I did. And I just got a notice this morning that... Um, that first batch of yarn is due to arrive tomorrow. So I'm like, Whoa. <laughs> and okay. <laughs> yeah. So I'm pretty excited. Um, I talked to the mill, uh, just a couple of days ago and I, I had it processed at Stonehenge fiber mill and I've used them for a long time. I said, Deb, how does it look? And she's like, now Kim, it looks just fine. Don't worry. <laughs> But I'm really excited about that. How much were you able to get from this first batch? Well, the the Gotland sheep are actually sheared twice a year. They're usually sheared in the fall and then again in the spring because their fiber grows so long. Mm-hmm. It can grow between 10 and 12 inches in a year. But also the fiber is very fine and silky and it tends to mat and semi felt if it goes through the winter without being sheared. So um, the the fleeces are what I would consider on the smaller side, especially when you're used to getting like a 15 pound Romney fleece, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the woman that I bought the sheep from in Oregon, she still had the first shearing from these sheep. So I was able to get their very first shearing, which was nice to have that to add to the wool that I I had as well. So I think this first uh, batch that I sent off, I think it was like twenty pounds of wool. Great. I can't I can't really remember, but that's so yeah. exciting. <laughs> yeah. So and I've I'm actually starting a sort of a division of Grandview Farm and calling it the Gotland Wool Company. Mm -hmm. And my vision is to provide a place where you can buy everything Gotland. You know, when I, when you do a search, because the breed is so new to the United States, it's very difficult to find a reliable source of mill spun yarn um, or roving or felting bats. And I just see that there's a real need for that. So um, I'm pretty excited about that. The sheep world is a very small world. You know, it, it is amazing. Everybody seems to know everyone else. And and that's one thing that really amazed me when we first got started was the um, compassion 
that sheep people have for one another and their Mm -hmm. desire to help each other. It's really Mm -hmm. a close knit community. But um, yeah, and when I, after I read Sue's book called Pure Wool, I contacted her myself with lots of questions about the breed. And she was always very nice to respond and Mm -hmm. sent me samples of yarn. And then before I sent my first batch of wool to be processed, I consulted with her, you know, wanted to know how to process it. And um, so she was very helpful in that way. Yeah, and and I'm really excited. I have a daughter who's in Germany for two years going to grad school, and my husband and I are going to go over in September and visit her, and we're going to also go to Gotland Island. Oh, yay. Yeah, so I'm, like, really excited about that, and I've been uh, contacting all these Gotland sheep farmers in Sweden, so all these Swedish shepherds are getting strange emails in their inbox from, <laughs> from me. Um, and it's, it's really, it's been fun to kind of try and find the people over there, you know, cause I, I want to go and get my hands on a hundred percent Gotland sheep. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. You have goals to develop your flock into as close to 100% as possible? I do. I think that's the desire of almost everyone that has a flock of Gotland sheep. Um, I have purchased two Gotland rams that are a pretty high percentage. They're a little bit over 95% Gotland. And so my plan is to use them. They're unrelated so they can breed each other's daughters And my goal is to sort of uh, use them every other year for breeding and then also do artificial insemination. Um, The artificial insemination is costly. And at this point, I'm not sure I can do it every year. But if I could try and do it every other year, that would keep the genetics kind of fresh in my flock Mm -hmm. and give me a wide variety of genetics and then slowly creep up towards, you know, closer to the hundred percent, but really, you know, I'm pretty close as it is. Those two Mm -hmm. rams are 95%. I have some 90, a 93% U. I, I think my lowest percentage U is, hmm, I think she's 80%. Mm -hmm. I'd have to have to check, but you know, they're, they're pretty high. Are they pretty hardy sheep? They are. Um, the Gotland breed originated on Gotland Island, which is an island in the Baltic Sea off the coast of Sweden. And they date back to like the 10th century. Um, they were developed by the Vikings. Um, so I can't imagine those Vikings were out there pampering their sheep, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Um So, yeah, like I said, you know, I was so impressed when these sheep arrived from Oregon. They had literally spent three weeks in horrible weather in the back of this livestock trailer. And I can honestly say not one of them had any problem, any sign of stress. There was no coughing. There was no runny nose. There were no runny eyes. They were just amazing. And to me, that said, they're hardy sheep, Mm -hmm. you know. I'm not sure I'd arrive healthy if I was in a livestock trailer three weeks. I know. (laughs) 
But yeah, and then they also um, have very good mothering instincts. So um, they they are very nurturing. They um, don't have problems with lambing that you might see in other breeds. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that tells me that they're a hardy breed as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, That's great. Um, so how did you learn everything that you know about farming and sheep? Did you just kind of teach yourself or did you kind of have mentors in the space or? Um, definitely both. Um, I'm the kind of person that researches everything. So that's just who I am. You know, I'm very, you know, if there's something I want to know about, then I go find out, you know, if I have Mm -hmm. questions, I go find the answers. Um, so that's just who I am, but definitely I've had a lot of mentors, you know, living in Vermont, it's a very large agricultural center. Um, so there are lots of people that are farming here. And, um, so it's very easy to get connected with other people that have more experience than you. So, you know, all through our farming We've definitely had people that have been mentors to us in all aspects. So that's that's been great. What did you do before you guys had a farm? <laughs> well, my husband and I moved to Vermont like, oh, 27, 28 years ago. And we were living in Washington, D.C. area. And when I was really young, I did live for a while in the southwestern corner of Virginia. And I told myself then when our family moved that I would go back one day. So after I got married and we were living in Washington, D.C., we, you know, we we just weren't happy with that lifestyle. And I I had that longing in my heart that I'd had ever since I left Virginia as a young child, that longing just to get back to a rural setting. And so we moved to Vermont. We picked it out and said, let's move there. Um, So that's kind of how we got here. I was actually a public school teacher. And, uh, you know, I loved being with the kids but I did not like the profession. I I didn't like the public school setting. It was a very difficult place for me to be because I had a tendency to uh, look at the needs of each individual child. And in the settings where I was teaching, they discouraged that um, and told me I couldn't give this child what he needed because then it wasn't fair to everyone else in the class. So I was constantly sort of butting heads with the administration, you know, Mm -hmm. being the advocate for all the kids in the class. Um, And my husband is an engineer and he still is. He, he works full time off the farm as an environmental engineer. And um, I was a teacher until my first child was born and then I've been a stay-at-home mom and homeschooled all my kids all the way through. So mm-hmm. I guess I, I guess I am still a teacher. <laughs> oh, you are for sure. Yeah, and a farmer. That's right. <laughs> I mean, that's right. It's the hardest job. <laughs> that's true. 
How many kids do you have? I have three children. What do they think about all that you're doing? You know, it's it's interesting as they have grown up, they've been able to verbalize <laughs> what they think of all of this. Um, I think for a young child, it's a great way to grow up. It's a great setting to be in. I think the lessons you learn by living on a farm are things that you don't learn other places. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you definitely learn about all of life's cycles, you know, the birth cycle, the death cycle, the you know, the jo- the ups and the downs, it's all there. But my oldest daughter, the one who's now in Germany, she is 22 years old. And when she first went to college, she began saying how much she appreciated her upbringing, that she realized that she had a different knowledge base than the other people that she was going to college with. So I I think they all recognize that. Now, will any of them return to Vermont and be farmers? Eh, probably not. (laughs) Uh, Not right away anyway, but that's okay too. You never know. I mean, like you said, I, I feel the same way. I think it's a great place for kids to grow up and, you know, every kid's gonna do their own thing, but I mean, life takes so many turns and- yeah even as adults my age and then I look at my parents you know they're making the same decisions now that I'm making at Mm. my age and so you never know what effect the seed is planted I guess and yeah and it'll maybe resonate more with them later right tell me a little bit about your homeschooling adventures. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, when my oldest was ready to attend kindergarten, she was five, her sister was three, and I had a newborn baby in the house. And the school bus came down the road at 7 a.m. to pick up the five-year-olds and didn't bring them back till four in the afternoon. And I was not ready to give her up yet. I, you know, I was having fun. And furthermore, because of where we live, our children are their best friends. And I couldn't imagine taking that oldest sister away from the other two, you know, the other two children. It, it would, I just felt it was going to be very disruptive to our family. And so my husband and I said, well, why don't we homeschool for a year? We'll try it out. We'll see how it goes. So we did. And we loved it. Had a good time. We said, okay, let's homeschool just one more year. You know, let's just take it one year at a time. Well, after that second year of schooling, we never looked back. You know, homeschooling becomes a way of life. It's a way of viewing things. It's a way of doing things. And um, I was having a great time. I think the kids were having a great time. I was a very hands-on person. Um there are a lot of different ways to homeschool, a lot of different philosophies. And um, my philosophy was to live life and learn through living. And so everything we did was about learning. I did have a lot of structure to our schooling. Like I purposefully thought about what we wanted to do and how we wanted to get there. Um, but it was all hands-on. You know, if if we wanted to uh, 
map out the United States, we went out in our 10 acre field and we took stakes and we drove them in the ground and we had this 10 acre map of the United States, you know, mm -hmm. um, if we wanted to learn about the gold rush, then we got into character of people from that time and we were out in the backyard digging for gold, you know, <laughs> so you know, we, we would live whatever we were doing and learning about. Um, that was a lot of fun, just mm. a lot of fun. Um, as my kids got older, I began to realize that they were pretty darn smart. <laughs> and I remember when my oldest was 12 years old and she and I and her sister were sitting at the dining room table and we were doing Latin. And the oldest daughter was trying to teach me and her sister the lesson in Latin. The sister is in tears. I'm on the verge of tears. And the older child is trying to teach us. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I need some outside resources. You know, mm -hmm. this, this child is learning this at a faster rate than I can give it to her. Mm -hmm. And so we did find an online school that was fantastic, um, that provided the upper academic classes that I just felt my children would learn more and get more out of it if they were taught by someone who is an expert in that field. So I did rely on that, that online school for some of those upper academic classes. But I think the hardest thing for me, though, was as your children get older and you're homeschooling, the role for the mother changes or the father who, or whoever is instructing them. As the children get older, my role was no longer at one of teacher. I was one, uh, my role became more of a facilitator. I was a facilitator of their learning. I would gather the resources that they needed to learn and make sure they had everything they needed to be able to learn. Whereas when they were much younger, I was doing all of the instructing. Mm -hmm. And that shift was sort of difficult for me. You know, I felt responsible that I should, should still be teaching them everything. Um, but once I realized that it was okay, it was okay for them to learn on their own. In fact, it was a good thing for them to know how to learn on their own. And it was okay to use outside resources. Once I realized that, it, it made me feel better, you know, like, okay, this is okay. You know, this is, this is actually the goal that you aim for, you know. So, but I think because of our homeschooling, our children have developed a love of learning. And I think that's pretty cool. That is really cool. Do any of your kids enjoy fiber or fiber arts? <laughs> um, they do. Um, my oldest daughter, when she was in school, I mean, she started doing this when she was t like 12 years old. She actually had her own online store. She made fairy dolls out of all natural fibers. Mm -hmm. And she would felt the clothes and make these absolutely adorable little dolls. She sold them worldwide and put herself through college 
with that money that she made. Um, the middle daughter knows how to spend, knows how to knit, um, and enjoys it. She enjoys felting. She quickly learned that uh, she was not like her oldest sister who she could just mass produce, you know, she she could make hundreds of dolls and never tire of it. But for Anna, she wanted to make things that that she wanted. You know, mm-hmm. she she wasn't in into it for a mass production thing. Um, you know, if if she like when she came home Christmas, she wanted to do some felting. So she and I uh, together made a felted sort of cloak for her. This really turned out really cool. So she enjoys doing those things as well. And then my son, he loves wearing the the things his mommy makes him. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Yeah. So they, they all have their hand in fiber in some way, you Mm -hmm. know? So that's great. Yeah. But kind of going back to your farm, uh, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about all the different parts of your farm. I know you have some different animals. Um, aside from sheep, what other what other animals do you have on your farm? You know, as with every farm that I know, our farm is very diverse and partly out of necessity. But we have chickens that we raise for eggs. And we used to raise chickens for meat. But the past couple of years, you know, as the kids are leaving home, we don't need as much food. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I finally convinced my husband last summer that we don't have to raise chickens. We don't need all that meat in the freezer. But uh, we did do that for a while. Um, my son raises pigs in the summer, and we've used the pigs to help clear pasture. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some areas that are overgrown pastures with saplings and brambles and wild raspberry canes and stuff like that growing. And so the pigs have uh, really helped us to clear some of that and to recapture some pasture. Then we have the sheep. Uh, We also have a guard llama who protects the sheep. We have a resident border collie, an (laughs) over-exuberant one-year-old border collie, (laughs) and then a few cats. So that's... That's awesome. I have been showing my husband your farm stay and we we hope to come have a farm stay at your place sometime Mm. I think that'd be just so much fun yeah that would be great it it's really interesting the people that come um last summer we had this family they came and stayed five nights with us and the mom said to me we want to be included in as much of your life as you can tolerate Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so after they ate breakfast, they would go out on their own and explore some of Vermont. But they'd come back in the afternoon and, you know, they just wanted to be a part of our life. And because they were here for a whole week, they really got to see and do a lot. Um, They helped us put our hay up. They helped pick wild raspberries and make jam. They were here for a sheepdog trial and they got to go to that with us. So it, it was just really, really great, you know. And But we also have guests who 
They just want to come and sit on the porch and relax and watch us work, you know, <laughs> and that's okay too. So, so I get a lot of emails, um, from different listeners about somehow getting involved in the either fiber industry or farming or whatever it is. And so many times, you know, they're not, they're not quite sure where to start. It'd be great to just hear from your gut, like what you would say to someone that wants to take that leap. My gut reaction is go for it and don't look back. That's what we did. I mean, you know, we are not farming for a profit. There is no profit in what I do. We are a self-sustaining farm. You know, when I talked about the different animals we had, each animal has a purpose. There's no, no, no animal lives on this farm for nothing. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone has to do some work in order to be here uh, because we can't afford to just have animals hanging out for the fun of hanging out. They all have mm-hmm. a job and it is scary. It is hard to make that leap. For me, though, it was hearing that person say at age 70, I have all these regrets in my life, and now it's too late. And that really struck a chord in my heart. I did not want to be sitting there when I was 70 saying that I had a lot of regrets. You know, I wanted wanted to feel like I had done and tried what I wanted to in life. Now... My husband and I moved to Vermont before we had children, and we were much younger. You know, what did we have to lose, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's okay if, if we were going to starve because it was just the two of us, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if you have a family with you, I can see that it's a little bit different. You know, you mm-hmm. have children you have to think about. But for me, it's... It's just the lifestyle. Now, I'll tell you a little story about, boy, 12, 12 or 13 years ago, my husband was offered a job outside of Vermont. And, um, you know, it was for more pay. It was closer to family. It was in a more urban area, maybe more school opportunities. And so he took that job and we left Vermont. We, we left it all behind. Well, actually, we took it with us and stuffed it all in our garage. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we moved with, we even kept five chickens and moved with five chickens in the, in the back of the car. And it was the hardest thing our family had ever done. And I remember sitting, we bought a house. We moved to Pennsylvania and we bought a house and we were sitting in the realtor's office signing the papers for the purchase of this house. And there was a woman sitting across the table from me just jabbering away. And she kept talking about the super Walmart and kept talking about one-stop shopping and her fingernails matched her purse, which matched her eyeshadow, which matched her dress. And I'm sitting there in my farm clothes, you know, and I wanted so bad to reach across the table because she kept talking about this one stop shop. You know, you stop on your way home from work and you pick up the movie for the kids. You pick up your dinner for the night. And, you know, if they have a nice pair of pants on sale, you pick that up, too. It's one stop shop. 
And I wanted so bad to reach across the table and pick her up by the collar and say, look, lady, I can't relate to you. I've got five chickens stuffed in the back of my car. And a one-stop <laughs> shop to me is to walk through my greenhouse and see what food is ready to harvest for my dinner. You know? <laughs> and, and the whole time that we lived there, that's how I felt. I kind of felt like I was this fish out of water and people didn't understand me and I didn't understand them. And, um, so we had only lived there for eight months and I came back to Vermont with my kids because someone asked us to farm sit and my husband came for the weekend. We were farm sitting for like two weeks and my husband stopped in to see his old boss and go out to lunch with him. And his old boss offered him a, his job back with his promotion. And I was like, you said yes, right? You said yes. You know? So we were only gone for 15 months. You know, we turned right mm -hmm. back around. We, you know, so we had a chance to go back. We had a chance to go back to all that that we had left in the Washington, D.C. area and we realized that we were different and we were different from who we were when we lived in the Washington area. And we came back to Vermont as fast as we could. So, <laughs> and it, it wasn't just coming back to Vermont. It was coming back to this lifestyle, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that you are self-sufficient, knowing that you are growing most of what you need to survive knowing that if the electricity goes out, you can still cook and you can still heat. It's, it's just sort of that self-sufficiency mentality. But I'll also say that, you know, when our kids were born and they were young and I would go back to visit family and friends in the South, sometimes I felt like I was depriving my children of something one time, my oldest was four years old, and I was visiting my mom in North Carolina, and my sister came over, and she and I were going to take all our kids out. I don't remember where, but we had them all stuffed in her minivan, and my little nephew, he kept talking about Bugs Bunny, Bugs Bunny this, Bugs Bunny that, and finally my daughter, who was so confused, she looked at him and said, Bugs Bunny? is he a jackrabbit or a snowshoe hare? And my sister and I just burst out laughing because I thought that's perfect. She knew rabbits. She knew the difference between snowshoe rabbit and a jackrabbit, but he watched Bugs Bunny all the time. That was what he knew of his rabbit. And I realized that day that my kids really weren't deprived. They just had a different knowledge base. You know, mm -hmm. it's their knowledge base is different from someone who lives in a more urban area. And it's not that one knowledge base or the other is bad or wrong. It's just they're different. And and so I didn't need to feel like I was depriving my kids of something mm -hmm. because I really wasn't. It's just that where they lived and what they knew about was different. For this week's Man on the Street, I asked a handful of fiber enthusiasts to answer a question shared by Katie in our Ravelry group. What advice would you give to someone just starting their fiber journey? 
Here's what they had to say. This is Sonia from Tenino, Washington. You can find me on Instagram at a tree by the river. Uh, for this week's question about uh, what advice I would give for those beginning their fiber journey, uh, I would just say to keep at it. Set aside time every day, even if it's just a few minutes, to keep working on your new skill. And as far as knitting goes, I also encourage you to just try new skills with each project. Hi, this is Samantha Rorick from Eugene, Oregon. You can find me on Instagram at srorick. That's S-R-O-H-R-I-C-H. My advice to someone just starting their fiber journey would be to never be afraid to try something that might be outside your comfort zone or abilities. Maybe it's knitting your first sweater, learning how to do a new fiber craft, or designing your very first pattern. Maybe you've been dreaming of a particular project that you may feel like you're never going to be ready for. By just jumping in and challenging yourself, you will learn so much and boost your knowledge and skills through the process. One of my first projects I ever knitted was a pair of stranded fair isle mittens, and I learned so much by just trying something that I thought would be hard. Hi, this is Beatrice Perrin-Dallin from Portland, Maine. You can find me on Instagram at threadandladle. Uh, I would tell people who are just starting their fiber journey to seek out other people. Uh, I think in this day of technology, it's so easy to find what you need online to teach yourself a new technique or figure things out for yourself. And that is wonderful and I think it helps us learn. But I also think that nothing can replace knitting with other knitters. You learn so much from other knitters and absorb their passions. um, And it's just a wonderful experience. I can't tell you how much I've learned from the women in my knitting group and how many unlikely friendships I have made uh, just through the common act of knitting. Hi, this is Abby. I'm calling from Durham, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram and Ravelry at Abby Good Knits. I have two pieces of advice for someone just starting out on their fiber journey. The first one is to just um, be fearless. I have been knitting for a few years now, and I feel like I spent a lot of time looking at patterns online or in books or at other creations people had made and just feeling really intimidated and feeling like there were so many things that I wanted to try and to tackle, but not feeling like I had the skills or the knowledge or it was going to be too hard or just really not having the confidence um, to tackle those projects. And one day I was just looking at tutorials online and just decided that I was just going to start knitting fearlessly and channel my inner Elizabeth Zimmerman. And it has paid off so tremendously and has changed the way that I approach my knitting and also my life. The other thing that I would say is that There's really no one right way to do anything in the knitting world. Um, At its most basic, there are different styles of knitting. There are different ways to make garments, to construct sweaters. And um, I would just say experiment until you find what you like and what works for you. Our next guest, Sue, has a pretty amazing and adventurous fiber journey, beginning with her flock of Gotland sheep and life as a fiber farmer in the UK, where she runs her fiber mill, the natural fiber company, and a specialty breed yarn company, Blacker Yarns. She puts an incredible amount of work into spreading the word and love of Gotlands and other rare sheep breeds. 
You can find her at thenaturalfiber.co.uk and at blackeryarns.co.uk. And with that, here's Sue. I would love to hear a little bit about your fiber journey, kind of where it started and, and how it's led to where you are today. Well, it all started partly, at least, because my husband is left-handed. This may not sound, this may not sound like uh, uh, a good way to start, but basically, left-handed guys, particularly ones who, who aren't used to living in the country, tend to try and drive lawn-mowing tractors along slopes instead of up and down them. And I watched this. I was absolutely horrified. We, we had um, some land where we actually were running holiday cottages because Cornwall is a great holiday venue. And basically, he was cutting the grass, and it was, A, taking very long, and B, I was terrified he was going to fall over and do himself a horrible injury. And so uh, we thought, what should we do? And we looked at sheep, goats, and cows, and in the end we opted for sheep. So we got sheep to cut the grass instead. (laughs) And those sheep... It's strange. I mean, I think most people who start on sheep go and get some advice from someone or other. And the person I got advice from just happened to have got on sheep and just happened, therefore, to have some for sale. And I just happened to fall in love with them. And so I ended up with got on sheep. And that was nearly 20 years ago now. And I started with four weathers, which are the easy guys because... They don't go off hunting for girls, and they don't go off hunting for boys, and they just sit and go pack and lovely and grow lots of wool. I started with them, and Jake, who was my oldest, um, actually lived to be 14 before he finally died. He's, he's my um, picture now on my laptop computer. So I started with the weathers, learned how to look after sheep, and then when Barbara, who'd sold me the weathers, retired, she then um, was looking to sell on her flock. And that's when I bought the ewes and rams and got involved in breeding documents. And um, I also bought her land. And I also, in between times, bought a very small sample carding machine, which she had been making roving for. And I took it all to pieces and put it all back together again in my garage and got some help from a guy um, to wire it up so that it all worked. And I was running a small um, carding service then when he wanted carding done. And uh, then I was also sending my own wool to the Natural Fibre Company to be spun. And at that stage, the Natural Fibre Company was in Wales. I was gradually becoming old and cantankerous and unemployable and looking for something else to do. And Myra and Philip were looking to retire. And somehow or other, we got our act together, did a lot of market research, wrote a business plan, and persuaded the bank to help us and some grants to help us and bought Natural Fiber Company. And that was 10 years ago. (laughs) So that's basically how it happened. Um, we started with sheep. I was a customer, not quite like the Remington Razor guy, but similar. I liked the products so much, I bought the company. <laughs> was this your first introduction into fiber when you got the sheep, or had fiber and, and maybe fiber arts always been something that interested you? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was curious, actually. 
few years ago we went and, and we, we do periodically do visits to schools and things like that. And I was teaching some kids to knit. And I realized I can't remember myself learning to knit. It, I can remember learning to read and write, but I actually can't remember learning to knit. So possibly learned before I could read and write. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But my mum and my grandmother, uh, my mum knitted everything. My sister knits. And we do a lot of sewing as well. And so I've always made things with fabric and yarn. Mm-hmm. How did Gotland sheep, how did that become the breed that you chose to raise? And can you tell me a little bit about that breed? Yeah, Gotland sheep are originally from Gotland, which is an island of Sweden. Um, they are a northern short-tail sheep, so they are a relatively primitive breed. They're lean and quite small, but they don't have horns. Um, they're similar to Shetlands and Hebrideans, but as I said, they don't have horns. They have long, lustrous wool, and again, that's slightly different. The longest of the northern short-tails is probably Hebridean, uh, but not got, got them even longer. In fact, we have to shear them twice a year to get a usable piece yield from them. Um, and I was introduced to them because Barbara, who also taught me to hand spin, um, had got them. And the reason she had got them was because she, as a very experienced hand spinner, thought they were the best fiber you could get. Um, I have to say, although I love lots of fiber, I, I have a sort of very soft spot for got things. I think the other thing about them is sheep is they're highly intelligent, um, partly because they're primitive, so they are much more on the lookout for keeping safe. I mean, Jake, the one I mentioned before, my first weather, I watched him spend 20 minutes trying to open the door of the chicken house. <laughs> then he would do that with grain inside. That takes some, you know, degree of concentration. Mm-hmm. They're, they're really um, interesting sheep. I, I love them. I mean, this week they were very naughty. The guys broke out of their field and got all mixed up with the girls. And they all just sat there and laughed at me while I tried to separate them again. <laughs> Although they, in the end, they all went back because they, they actually they live in groups and they're usually happy to live in those groups. It's only when the guys are really into the girls in October time that it's quite difficult to keep them apart. <laughs> uh, how many are in your flock now? At the moment, I have... Four got the views only, and ten boys of whom five are, well, actually, tell a lie, twelve boys of whom five are weathers and seven are rams. I happen to have a lot of rams right now. So I know that you have a Gotland yarn. Yes. Uh, is that come from your flock, or is that something that you source kind of from different flocks that you know of? We have to, we have to source from more. I mean, Gotland... Mine in particular, because I breed them relatively small to encourage the fineness of the fiber. Uh, they don't yield more than about three or four kilos a year each. Mm-hmm. So by the time you've spun that, that goes down to two or three kilos. So we buy in from other places as well, although pretty much every batch we make has a few of my fibers amongst it. Mm-hmm. That's really special. So you had these sheep, and then... At some point in, what was it, like 2005 or 
we started looking at it in 2003-04, and we, we spent nearly a year doing a lot of market research and building the plan. And I think I first went to see Myra and Philip round about September 2004, and we finally took over the lease of our mill in September 2005. So it took a bit of time putting the whole thing together. Did you work there before you bought it? No. No? What, what I did was, I Myra had a, a really good guy, an engineer, who she worked with, and I fixed with him to go on a, a sort of study tour, and we went and visited scouring plants and mills and dye works, weavers, all around the country, mainly in Yorkshire, which is the centre for the UK wool industry. We went to visit a lot of places, and they were, they were all great. They shared their knowledge and talked about things. And then um, we recruited a guy who was a carding engineer who helped. Uh, I mean, the equipment all had to be installed by and came in boxes, basically, just boxes of nuts and bolts and screws and frames. And you, you just assemble the whole thing. So I imagine that you didn't always know that you were going to have a mill. <laughs> right. And what kind of, what was the precipice for deciding to, you know, buy this mill and run this mill? I think it's really strange. I, I'd been running a, a charity uh, which specialised in wood and timber. And we'd done a lot of work on looking at trying to add value to wood and timber grown in the UK. Um, and it's very similar because it's a relatively low-value raw material which is extraordinarily versatile. You can make it into lots of things. And wool is very similar. So... A lot of the work that I've been doing on timber sort of translated into a thing which I felt a greater affinity with, really, because of the fact that I love knitting and making things. And I'm less good at woodwork than I am at knitting. Um, so uh, that all made a pattern that came together that I could, I, could, I could see that there was something that could be done. Secondly, I mean, Myra had already, and, and Rose before her, had already created a business that was really quite inspiring, working with the small holders and the specialist breeds. So that was great. Thirdly, after I did it, I realized that one reason why it was possible was because I could imagine doing it. You know, I think if your father is a doctor, you can imagine being a doctor. And my great-grandparents were all in the wool industry in Yorkshire, in Bradford, in, in Worcester, Spinning. So although I hadn't really thought about that or ever following them into it, it was there in my background to imagine doing it. Mm -hmm. So all of that came together, together with the fact that, I, as I said, I was really, and I had been for a long time, wanting to find and start my own business. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the mill and how it's kind of evolved since you've taken it over. Well, when we started, it was an enormous, great, empty shed with nothing in it except a load of crates full of pieces of metal. And very gradually, we put everything together. We put in a small 
scale, scouring plant. Um, before, Myra in Wales had scoured by hand virtually, um, but we automated that. We also put in a second carding machine. We got one from her and one that we, we added from a, um, an old mill in Yorkshire. And a woolen spinning frame, which we got new because, again, Myra was um, obsolete and we couldn't get spares for it anymore. So that was the sort of basics. And we then gradually added and have gradually also renewed the plant over the last 10 years. So the scour is as it was originally. The fear naught, which is the blending machine and teasing, that is what came originally, but almost every other machine has been upgraded or updated or changed. And we added worsted spinning, so we can both woolen and worsted spin. We think we're one of the few people who can do that. We added a dye plant, and we've upgraded our plying and reeling and winding and ball winding machines. So there isn't a lot of room left for more machines now. <laughs> just got a, a new spinning frame just before Christmas and at first we thought, well, goodness knows where to fit. And then we remembered that we'd had another machine for a while and when we moved things around a little, lo and behold, there was room for it. <laughs> we, we started with a small area which is, is above the office, which is where all our wool was stored, but now we've put in a full-scale mezzanine floor so basically, we've added about 40% to the floor area by building an upstairs mezzanine floor. And that's where we sort and grade our wool, and where we store our fleece, our scoured fleece, and also our finished bits. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you specialize in some of these more small heritage or primitive breeds. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of these breeds that you... Uh, work with often, and then some of your favorite ones? Well, it is hard to, to have a favorite because there are some yarns which are, or some fibers which are truly beautiful. I suppose at one end of the spectrum there's Herdwig, which is a very coarse and quite harsh fiber, but it is the most wonderful color. It's just, uh, it, it's like granite. It's all sorts of greys all mingled together, and it's got a richness to it, which is just fantastic. Um, very architectural, very sculptural in terms of, of what you can do with it. Very hard-wearing. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you've got the things like Shetland and Blueface Lester, which are uh, very soft, very fine. Um, Shetland comes in lovely natural shades. I would mm-hmm. say that for our mill, we are quite unusual in that getting on for half of all the wool we spin is actually naturally coloured wool, which is very unusual by a wool mill, by large-scale wool mill standards, where they tend to focus on white. Um, mm-hmm. Within that, I think probably we're doing about 25% alpaca, about 10-15% mohair, and the rest is wool. And within our total, we're probably now about 20-25% organic processing. And of the wool breeds, probably the biggest are Shetland and Jacob. But we do a lot of black brush mountain, which is a lovely little black sheep, very nice, neat little sheep. 
And then we have the very rare Boroway and Sorrow, which we specialise in and working with the breeders to try and gain a stronger future for that breed. How do you manage, you said you have two carters, how do you manage milling these all these different breeds? You have to be careful. Mrs. White does not want Mrs. Black's wool mixed up with hers. So, and nor does Mrs. Black want Mrs. White's wool. So we work usually from fine to coarse and also from white to dark. So you gradually change from one to the next to the next in the small batches on the machines. And we do things like Herdwick last and then we have to clean down the machine completely before we start again. Um, the carding machines gradually fill up with fibre anyway. And what you can do if you want is, supposing you've been doing some grey, you can put a bit of white wool through the machine just as a, um, a coating device and then go back to white if you need to. Mm-hmm. But we need to have production schedule pretty carefully to mm-hmm. make sure that we reduce contamination to the absolute minimum. Mm-hmm. Out of all the breeds that you've talked about, what are some of the challenges that you have to encounter with those? The challenges range from Merino, which has a very greasy and waxy sort of uh, lanolin, and so it's harder to scour. It's also because it's very fine, it's harder to scour. The same applies to kid mohair. Also, kid mohair, I don't know what it is about baby goats, they spend all their time in the hay rack as well as we can gather. <laughs> Full of education in hay suits. Um, now, when you make a Worcester yarn, if you comb, that does get rid of vegetation. And occasionally we comb to de hair or to remove A seeds and, and fibres, vegetable fibres. The other thing is something that's really quite challenging is Devon Corner Long Wool, which is our local rare breed, because they produce really long, coarse, thick wool coats and, and very heavy coats. I mean, one sheep can yield. 10 or 12 kilograms easily. Those we have to not only chop the fibre to reduce the length, because it's so strong that it won't break itself into the right lengths in the machines, we also have to blend up around 50% with a, a more um, downland style of wool like Southdown or, or Portland with it to hold it together. And we had a batch last week and it was gorgeous beautiful fine Edwardian, but it was really, really difficult. It just kept falling through the machines. It's one of the um, both the joys and also the big challenges that wool as a natural fibre, you can have one batch after the next batch after the next batch. One of them runs beautifully through all the machines. The next one, which looks and feels virtually the same, just won't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's I mean, it, I think I could make it akin to people who know about baking. When you make bread, your flour tends to need different quantities of water from each batch to another batch. And it's like that. It is, the fibre itself is natural, and some of it's very different from others, even when it's apparently, even numerically down to a, a micron test, looks the same, feels the same. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you've gained a lot of knowledge since you've owned this mill for 10 years. But, you know, when you got started, how did you learn about all the different, you know, wool types, how to process each type of wool? 
you know, what was that, what was that learning curve like for you? It was quite hard. I mean, I think probably the first six months we weren't making very good yarns. Um, not like now, anyway. Um, we gradually improved. I think, in a way, because we were moving from what had been much more an artisanal production facility, I don't think the customers were terribly disappointed. I mean, a couple of them probably were at the time, but I think the other thing is most people were really patient because they wanted this to go on and to work. Mm-hmm. And I think the last six years we've been making fantastic humans. So you just would kind of run a batch and, and learn that fiber and learn how your machines responded to it and make adjustments and then move on from there. Yeah. In fact, one of the interesting things is Milo used to run mohair as a completely separate batch and alpaca as a completely separate batch. And the way they set the machines, they believe they have to do that. But we find we don't have to do that. So we can run white mohair, then white alpaca, then white wool, then grey alpaca and grey wool and, and so on. We, we don't need, because James is pretty good at setting machines now, we don't really need to distinguish and so we can, it helps quite a lot for the mohair and alpaca people because they used to have to wait months until they were sufficient to run a whole batch of mohair or, or alpaca. What, the way we run it, every batch is separate, everyone gets their own wool back, but we group a ton of small batches mm-hmm. and then scour it all together because our scouring machine does one ton at a time and we run each successive batch through it. Each one takes, 20 kilograms takes about six minutes to go through the scouring machine, then we leave a six minute gap and then the next one and then the next one, so they're all kept separate. Uh, but the machine itself will scour a ton of wool. So then we dry it and run that through the rest of the mill, and then we start again. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the scouring uh, machine that you guys have, or, or how is your what is your scouring setup like? Well, it's um, it looks like it looks amazing actually, because most modern scouring plants are all boxed in, whereas ours is open and people can see how it works. We have three bowls. There's a hopper feed that feeds the wool in at to the first bowl, which is a bowl is actually a, a tank which contains six tons of water. Uh, it has a raking system over the top which drags the wool gently through the water. It also has grids set about a third of the way down to the bottom of the bowl so that the dirt falls through but the wool stays above. And as it breaks through, it then goes out to the end of the bowl, goes up a conveyor uh, and into the next bowl. But on its way, the most important bit is it goes through a set of squeeze rollers which are really heavy duty um, mangles and they take out all the dirty water and dirt so that when it goes into the next bowl, it's much cleaner. So the first bowl is used for uh, wetting, effectively, and loosening the, the lanolin at 65 degrees, which is where lanolin will loosen. The next bowl is at 60 degrees, which basically washes out the dirt. And then the final bowl is at uh, around about room temperature. And out it comes at the other end, 
with a all, pretty much all the dirt and most of the lanolin removed. I mean, compared to a very large scale scour with eight rolls, we don't remove as much lanolin as the the really very big scours. Mm-hmm. And then we dry it. We actually dry it in tumble dryers from um, laundromats, which, because of the squeeze rollers, it only needs two minutes in the uh, tumble and out it comes. Wow. As you've developed these processes and you worked on these, you created these different yarns, are you finding that most of the people or most of your customers are local or do you get a lot of business from all over the UK and, and even Europe? Oh, we do. Um, interestingly, when we started, quite a few of the Welsh customers were a little bit unhappy because they wanted to be able to say it was grown and made in Wales. And initially, uh, we had a lot of new customers from the southwest of England. But because we are, I, I guess, really, I can say we are the market leader, um, we now get wool from all over the country, from the Scottish Islands, from the southeast in Kent, from the north of Wales, from Ireland, and increasingly from uh, the rest of Europe as well. We've got customer who comes regularly from Belgium, uh, another one, couple from France, uh, some German customers, and a Swedish customer. So we have a whole range of um, people from around the country that to us. Mm. That's really exciting. We love it. So what is your team like? I, you know, I'm guessing it's probably more than just you and, and maybe your husband or whoever you have working for you, but... Well, we have in production, in the mill, we have Paul, who's our mill manager. He's um, trained as an apprentice originally as a worsted spinning engineer. He's been with us seven years now. And James, who is our carding engineer. And they're the two who are, if you like, trade trained. And then working with them are David, who we trained as an apprentice here and does quite a lot of the spinning. And Bill, who's just joined us on a part-time basis, who's doing wool sorting and braiding and learning to spin. And then on the finishing end, but also able to do spinning, we have Susan, Tay, Sadie, and Robin. And they do plying, reeling into skeins, winding onto cones, ball winding, hand-twisting hanks, labelling, sticking ball bands on, and packaging. So that's the mill staff, so they're eight altogether. Um, Robin's part-time, Bill's part-time, Susan's part-time, the rest are full-time. And then in the office, we have Anne, who's our office manager, who's been with us, must be five years now. Lara and Andy, who support our spinning customers. And Sonia, who supports our yarn customers, together with Chloe, who comes in two days a week to pick and pack all our parcels. And then there's me, and my husband Douglas works part-time, and he specializes in looking after our website. So when you started, was it just you and your husband? It was me originally, and initially I didn't get paid either. <laughs> he, had, he, had, he had to find the food for us for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and I had uh, one lady who started with me, um, 
He was also called Sonia, but a different Sonia. He stayed with us for about seven years. And then uh, we had in the mill at that stage, we had Paul, uh, Peter, who was a carding engineer, who came uh, really on a consultancy basis until we could try and find someone more permanent. And Rachel, who came and did the spinning, and she actually moved from Wales to Cornwall. So she had spun at the old natural fiber company in Wales. And that was about it. We started with four or five people. And now we are 15. <laughs> Still a small team, but you've definitely grown. What we do try and do is we try to make sure, both from the point of view of interest and also from the point of view of that's interesting work, and also from the point of view of flexibility in production, nearly everybody can do several different things. Clay does the dyeing as well as Paul, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, nearly everybody can do spinning to some degree or other, that sort of crossover bit. And everybody can sweep the floor because we have to do plenty of that. Even I'm allowed to sweep the floor. But we have quite stringent health and safety procedures, so you know we have to be sure that we are making making sure people don't get themselves caught in these big machines. Because the machines are, I mean, they're small by carpet mill standards, but they are 40 feet long and six foot wide, so they are, you know, relatively large. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know whether you know, there's, there's a film on our website called, you click on our website and there's a, a thing called Take a Virtual Tour of Our Mill and it shows both my sheep being shorn, which is quite nice, and then bits about the mill and the yarns that we make and the processes. And it's got James and Paul speaking on it, so it's something that people might want to look at. Good. I will definitely check that out. When I first heard about you, it was quite a long time ago. And then Ben, when I talked to Ben, you know, he's like, you really need to talk to Sue. (laughs) And so uh, I was checking out your website again, but I didn't watch the video. So I'll make sure and go check that out. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fun, I think. And it's not too long. Mm -hmm. And we we do little tours as well. So we we have a series of open days coming up this year. And people can actually come and visit the mill and see around and look at our yarns and buy what we've got on special offer. Mm-hmm. That's, um, we've got one in April, one in July, and one in October, and they are all listed on our, our website as well. Okay. We also, I mean, we, we, we have to limit it obviously, to one a month because it gets so much, but uh, we have a lot of guided tour visits. We particularly have women's institutes, young farmers, and recently we had the Devon and Cornwall shearers, sheep shearers, who all came on. And of course we always take our customers down anyway. Because it's important being, as, as I was saying earlier, you know, the fact that some wool goes through really easily and some wool just is really difficult to process, then we need our customers to understand what we do with their wool and why they send us 100 kilos and only get 60 back. Right. Of the dirt and grease and all the other bits that fall out on the process and, and those sorts of things. So we, we've always tried to make it as open and transparent as possible because that also helps people defend us the right way to do the process. I think that that's really awesome approach because 
I imagine it takes a certain level of patience too, especially when you're you're really busy. But I think that that's great what you guys are doing. Well, as I said, we, we only do one a month because it's the most that we can spare the time to do. And quite, quite often it's in the evenings, so I, I do it after work sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, it's really funny, actually, because quite often on our open days, we get ladies who come who are really into fiber arts and really want to make things. And they drag along their husbands and sons who, who are there basically to, you know, transport or, or pack animals mm-hmm. you get them into the mill and they're ah oh, they are engrossed they just love the machines that's really neat how many pounds of fiber or um, kilos of fiber do you generally process in like a month around about one and a half to two tons a month mm-hmm. so it works out at about 25 maybe 30 tons a year at the moment uh, yeah, it's about a, a ton every two to three weeks, so it works out at between one and two tons each month. Uh, but we also, that, that's from our scouring, we also take in quite a lot of, we've grown around more um, large-scale batch and commercial orders as well, so we also take in quite a lot of fiber as prepared tops, mm-hmm. and so we another five or six tons on top of that as um, part process that we just spin and finish for people. Oh, okay. It used to be 10. We started at 10. How much of that is the yarn for blacker yarns? Uh, Probably now we're doing about three, four tons a year. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that arises with that is Firstly, that you can't always get some of the rare breed piece. So you have to collect it, you know, borrow a 400 of them only and, and register. So we have, you know, not everybody wants to or can collect their piece. So we have to collect over months to get hold of enough borrow a to make a batch. Mm-hmm. And then even with our relatively small machines, we need a minimum of 20 kilograms to put through them. Mm-hmm. So then again, when we make a lot of these rare breeds, we make 20 kilos each of Shetland White, Shetland Fawn, Shetland Grey, Shetland Novik, Shetland Warwick, Shetland Black. Mm-hmm. So you end up with 15, say, 15 kilos of each of those. That is the minimum batch that we can make. And we, we've tried always to carry a really wide range, although sensibly we, we are cutting back a bit on, on the full range and we're making more limited editions of the rare breeds and we make it when we can, when we can get hold of. But I think the other thing is with with yarns people are quite quite spoiled in a way. They expect all yarn to be like cotton and cashmere. And they're not so forgiving of, of the less soft yarns. So we have gradually refined and refined. And for example, we select very carefully from individual farms. So our blue process, I think, is amongst the best that you can get. Our Shetland, I'm sure, is among the best that you can get because the quality of the ingoing fibre is the best around. Mm-hmm. 
really important um, because that's how that's what people want and that's mm-hmm. what they want they do. So tell me a little bit more about Blacker Yarns. We started uh, making yarns in round about 2008 for sale. So we've been running yarns for sale for six, seven years now. And we started with breeds, specific breeds, Shetland, Jacob, Black Welsh Mountain, sort of those breeds. North Ronald, so we've always done. Manx, Lockton, we've always done. And Hebridean. And gradually we added a range of other ones. Our Norfolk Horn, I really love at the moment. And of course, Gotland. Mustn't ever forget Gotland. So we added uh, um, gradually to that range of different um, breeds and different colours within the breeds. And also, we try always to make sure that the the yarn that we make is suitable for the fibre. So, for example, I personally don't think that Shetland makes a brilliant Aran yarn. It's like sort of almost too bulky. Mm-hmm. And the same, I think, to a degree with Blueface Leicester. They make much better um, fingering and worsted weight yarns than they do the heavier, thicker yarns. Where something like a um, Gotham makes a really nice double pattern. Um, some of them make better lace weights than others. Merino, for example, doesn't really keep its block very well if you use the lace yarn, but also it, it doesn't work. To my mind, it doesn't work well as a super, super bulky either. So we, we try to make the yarn that most suits the fibre. And then when we've made our ranges, we now have Classic, which has got 30% blue faced and other white British wool. And blue faced Leicester adds some softness and, and drape to it. Um, but it's, it's just a good balanced woolen spun yarn. And our Blackest Swan, which is our joint venture with Andres and Ali Short in the Falkland Islands, is high welfare Booney uh, Merino, which is a particular style of merino sheep, which is um, particularly good for beautiful fibre. He's, he's not happy if he has over 20 micron fibre, and, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And so we've got these ranges now. Elegance, which is naturally quite full, coloured with coloured alpaca, which also helps soften and smooth it. And our tweeds, which are all West Country sourced, so they're all from within 100 miles of, of the mill. Um, we're just about to launch a new one, which is our summer yarn, oddly enough. It's a 50 50 blend of wool and linen. and it is rather nice. We've been playing with it and knitting with it, and I think people will like it. We try and, I mean, the colours for the Falkland Wool, the Blackest One, are all named after plants and places in the Falkland Islands. The colours in the classic yarns are just basic colour names, but the colours in the Leoness will be the names of jewels, because it's a sort of mythical lost country that was buried underneath the sea off the end of England of, of Cornwall a long, long time ago, in theory. So, so a mythical yarn. Mm-hmm. Sounds very special. How do the specialized yarns that you have, which you know seems like you're really 
You really are trying to bring something special with each yarn. How do you come up with these ideas and, and you know, is well, your team? Or? I think, well, Classic was our first. Um, we had done some blending before. And we were looking at a way of trying to make good quality fiber go further by adding blue face to slightly more ordinary wool and maintaining a quality, but also working down to a price where we felt it was more accessible. Some of our yarns, because they're rare, they just are very expensive. And we are a bit um, passionate about trying to make everybody access to these things. So um, that was how classic evolved. Um, interestingly, like a swan evolved, because Andres contacted me. Andres emailed me and said, I'm looking for my value to my wool. And I emailed back and said, how about a joint venture? And the rest is history. It just sort of emerged. Mm -hmm. um, Elegance was designed as a, a, a halfway between the really top-end luxury black as swan and the everyday steady value of classic. They wanted something that was in between and it's purely uh, natural colours. Um, then Leoness was to do with thinking about the summer and adding linen. And we played around with adding linen to yarn before and I have really loved them. It, it has a crispness and it has a a lovely sort of brown heathered nature from the colour of the linen flax fibres. And I just thought, and luckily Sonia agreed. I mean, it tends to be a bit of a committee. We sort of develop the ideas, look for what we think fits within our ranges overall, and also things like the tweed. We really wanted to do a tweed with yarn. We think it sort of represents the landscape. Um, we knew that tweeded yarns were quite popular. So it's a mixture between looking what we can do with our machines, looking at what good top quality fibre is available, looking at trying to make our ranges compatible, and, and looking at what fashion on the market is also looking at. We do try and make our yarns a bit more um, long-term and sustainable. So because we know that anything that's made with wool will last a long time, we try and make the colours and the ranges and the styles and also our patterns something that won't just get terribly dated really quickly. And it, it takes people a while to make things anyway. So, so we've talked a lot about, you know, your Gotland sheep and, and your mill and then now blacker yarns. And there's definitely been a natural progression through your fiber journey. As you think about other people, you know, whether it's in the UK or here in the States that are interested in maybe starting their own mill, that's something that my husband and I are just embarking on right now. But I'm curious what your advice would be to them as they get started. I think several things really. One is don't underestimate how much it will cost and don't underestimate how long it will take because 
it will both take longer and cost more than you originally imagined. <laughs> On the other hand, it's extraordinarily satisfying to be able to make things, to be able to manufacture a beautiful yarn from beautiful fiber is just so wonderful. And I think the other thing that's really great is that you learn so much from your customers, from the rest of the industry. I mean, the, the, the wool processing industry is very special. It's very old. We've been doing it thousands of years. There's loads of knowledge there, and I've found that most mills are very willing to share knowledge and expertise and help. We had a machine break um, a couple of years ago, and it was pretty fundamental. Um, it was a big um, drive wheel, and we managed to get two within a week replacements because we just phoned around and they said, oh yeah, I've got one of those, it could have been in the yard for ages, you can have it. They could have said, no, we don't want you to, to, be, to succeed. You know. But generally speaking, we, we found the, the generosity and interest and knowledge in the industry and amongst fiber and craft workers and amongst farmers is fantastic. And um, we've made so many friends, which I think is, is wonderful. The winner of last week's giveaway is Madeline Fiddler. You've won the Radius Pattern Collection from Drea Renee Knits and two skeins of Radius Yarn Bulky from Knitterly. Congratulations! This week's giveaway is sponsored by Blacker Yarns, and we're giving away five skeins of their West Country Tweed. All the fiber from this yarn comes from within 100 miles of the Natural Fiber Company mill in the UK, made with intentions to have the smallest footprint possible. To enter this giveaway, leave a comment on today's episode's blog post at woeful.com. I wanted to make sure and thank today's sponsor again, Port Fiber. I think it's really wonderful when a shop dedicates so much to the spinning and fiber community as Port Fiber has, both through their amazing offering of products and with a great selection of classes. Visit Port Fiber online at portfiber.com and in person in Portland, Maine. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Casey, Kim, Sonia, Samantha, Beatrice, Abby, and Sue. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woeful.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, including our Man on the Street segment, or as an episode or giveaway sponsor, shoot me an email at hello at woeful.com. Have a wonderful week.